right welcome back to the platform podcast and speaking of welcoming back to the podcast my guest this week is jennifer broxerman she and i just recorded an episode a few weeks back about it was supposed to be ostensibly about sport nutrition and we kind of actually ended up being more about gamifying nutrition and kind of nutrition fundamentals but as a reminder she's a registered dietitian from canada and she is also the founder of prosper nutrition coaching and nutrition rx she She's an athlete. She does crew. She did all sorts of stuff. She's an awesome human being. So Jen, thank you for taking the time to come back on the platform podcast. Welcome. Oh my gosh. So, so grateful to be here. Thanks for having me back. So speaking of your nutrition coaching business, we were talking before we started recording. It sounds like one of our mutual friends is uh, going to sign up for your January cohort. And it sounds like you're getting close to selling out your January, January cohort. So free opportunity to plug your, to plug your, your, your coaching service here. Yeah, so I own a nutrition certification company called Prosper Nutrition Coaching, where myself, the dietitian, is the head coach on video, really taking those nutrition coaches who are like, you know, I have a cert or two, but why are my clients dropping off after three or six months? And what I just do is I inject a little bit more fun and games and resources and just metaphors and ways to talk to clients to really take them through a transformational journey. And so not only in the certification do we cover the general population, health, wellness, but we start to do a deep dive in those special circumstances where coaches often, especially if they're a solo coach, don't have someone to turn to. So we get into things like women's nutrition, women's specific health. We get into pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause. We get into youth and teenager athletes. We get into more elite advanced athletes. We get into older adults. So I think a lot of the certs that are out there are the very generic, here's the science of nutrition for adults, where what I tried to do is I'm like, you probably already have that down pat. Now let's have fun talking to real humans, especially when the real human takes a 90 degree turn and you're sitting across from them being like, uh, uh, what am I supposed to say next? The goal is to build your tool belt. So you have all these resources to pretty much guide anyone, no matter where they are on their journey. Yeah. So that's called prosper nutrition. And I'm accidentally almost sold out. Like we launch again in January and I only take 30, 30 students at a time. And we are secretly almost sold pre-sold out. And I have not advertised this yet. It's just every cohort that graduates tells another coach or two and it's just been growing completely by itself organically. That's awesome. There's nothing uh, There's nothing that says more about the quality of a product than when people that actually do the certification tell other people that they should do the certification. Yeah. So that is- that Greatest is compliment, for sure. Fantastic. So, and if people miss the January cohort, which I'll put a link in the episode notes. So if you miss the opportunity, sign up for the for the, for the the January cohort. There's another one coming, it sounds like in, in, in March-ish, right? Yes, you'll have to wait till March if you miss the January intake. Cool. And, and they can sign up for, they can sign up for your email list to get notified yeah. when those, when those, if, if it, if yeah. they miss the opportunity on January, they sign up for the email list, they'll get notified. Yeah, when the get your name on the wait list. So anyone who's on the wait list gets that Disney fast pass. You actually get to jump the line. And when spots open up, you get a head start on being able to grab one of the certification places where if you're not on the wait list, you have to wait for it to open to the general public and it's first come first serve what might, what might be left over. Nice. And how many, uh, how many weeks is the, is the course? It takes 18 hours in total. So it is self-paced on average. I get most coaches graduated between four to six to eight weeks, but you have a full year 
with your mentors, with the material. If you have a life event come up, if you need a little more time, I've had a whole bunch of coaches go through it, get certified. And then I re-recorded the certification as a podcast audio file. So then they go through it a second time, a little more casually, you know, as they're out for walks and chopping their veggies, then they can really absorb the information and make it come to life with their real clients. Nice. Love it. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on, uh, on the word of mouth and the organic growth of, of your certification. That, that yeah. sounds fantastic. Uh, although that is not what I brought you here to talk about today. We, we, uh, you did allude to it a little bit there, which is, um, you, you kind of have, you, you have a unique perspective on women's health and I'm not sure if people have had a chance, if they haven't had a chance to, to hear your story, I think it's a really powerful place kind of to start with why you have such a passion for women's health. So if you wouldn't mind, just, just tell us a little bit about your journey and, and kind of, kind of what your experience, uh, has been these, these past, you know, 10, 15 years. Well, buckle up. It's a buck and Bronco wild ride. So going back a little bit, like we alluded to, I played a whole bunch of sports and was a really high level athlete. So I, you know, did soccer and hockey and gymnastics and dance and rowing and track and field and cross country and triathlons, you name it. I was just that kid that loved to move my body. And one of the things that I always really paid close attention to, of course, was my nutrition. Being an athlete that wanted to do as well as I could, I was never the most naturally talented, but I always had that work ethic. And so whenever I looked at some of my peers that had a little bit maybe some more raw potential, I was like, but there's other things besides just skill that's going to allow me to get to the highest level. And so I started to look at nutrition as one of those elements of support, sleep and stress management, recovery, mobility, you know, mental health, self-talk. And so I was just that little determined scrappy kid that was like, Hey, I'm going to get really good on the field or on the ice, but I'm also going to get really good with my mindset. I'm also going to get really good with my food. I'm also going to get really good with my sleep and my recovery. And I think that's one of the reasons why I got to be at as high of a level as I did. So all that's to say that I took my health really, really seriously. You know, you see those naturally talented athletes who are great. And then they're like eating McDonald's, you know, post post competition. Uh, and they're like, well, I'm lean. It doesn't really matter. I was like, no, like, I know that this stuff matters. So I had years and years and reps and reps of healthy eating. And that's where it, I, it makes sense why I believed my body when something was wrong. Because if I wasn't taking very good care of myself and things were a little bit off, then it would have been really easy to just go, well, you know, I'm not eating the best or I'm always burning the midnight oil and not sleeping as much as I should. Maybe I should start there. So, you know, fast forward through my 20s, I've done a dual varsity sport in university. So I played on the varsity hockey team. I also was a varsity rower. I made it all the way up to the Canadian level, considered doing one of the Olympic cycles, but I ultimately chose doing my dietetic internship, which was a full-time commitment over being a full-time unpaid Olympic athlete. So I, I always sort of had the vision of where I wanted my career to go. So I was very grateful I got to the highest level I could with rowing, but ultimately wanted to move on. And so then I found CrossFit and I loved CrossFit. So my husband owned a box for 16 years and it was such a cool way to challenge yourself and learn all these new skills. And as I was becoming a better CrossFitter, and I ultimately made it to the regional level, I'm a big nerd, so you're going to really notice me nerding out in today's episode, I started to use data in a really powerful way to guide my training. So I was like super old school, I had like a little book, every single workout, I would like write down what I did, 
I made notes on how I broke up my reps and set. I made notes on like where I felt fatigued, which exercises felt the hardest when I felt great. And whenever things were a little bit off, I could almost pre-tell when I was going to get sick with a cold because I could just look through my training book and my notes and I documented how I was feeling and responding to training. And because my husband, boyfriend at the time, was my CrossFit coach, I think that was to my advantage for making CrossFit at the highest level because I could give those early little bits of feedback before smartwatches and heart rate variability and you know things like that to be like, uh, I'm starting to notice this. Should I dial this back? Should I ramp this up? You know, I'm running, I'm feeling a bit flat. Can we look at my run splits? So I always just started to look at data to guide my body and decision-making. And then I happened to make this really weird purchase and I purchased a bod pod machine. Now a bod pod is like an in-body scanner, but it's the gold standard of body composition testing. Cause I was starting to get really interested not from a vanity or disordered eating headspace, just around female muscularity, body composition, body fat percent, you know, optimal hormone levels, performance recovery. And I more just wanted to double check that I was fat enough, that I did, you know, was carrying enough muscle. And it was just kind of cool. Pause for a second, because I, I like, there are probably like a dozen women that just went, wait, she wanted to make sure she was fat enough. Right, right. Because here's the thing. My background as a teenager involved disordered eating. So like many young women growing up in that kind of like Kate Moss, skinny model, skinny, skinny, skinny is, is beautiful. Nothing tastes better than skinny feels. Nothing tastes better than thin feels. Nothing is better than skinny. That was the paradigm of my teenage years of what exercise and beauty and appearance should look like. And so you could, as an athlete who's exercising and I played hockey, right? You get quads, you get hamstrings, you get big glutes. Like you have big, strong muscles pushing on the ice. And so I was like, well, how do I make my legs get skinnier? I guess I just have to eat a lot less because I can't exercise anymore. You know, and I go and run a half marathon to the point where I then stress fractured both my tibias and I thought it was shin splints. So I was getting massages on stress fractured bones. So unbelievably painful, but it was at the time, my younger mindset was like grit and bear it. Like you won't take me down. No one will outwork me. Now, as I've gotten older and smarter, you hopefully get wiser. And now I really value my body and my health as like, we get one body on this journey through life. So how well can I take care of this vehicle I get to be inside. I want it well nourished. I want it well slept. I want it enjoying joyful exercise. I want it to be properly rested and maintained because if I can take care of this amazing body, I'm going to be like, I have a bet with my best friend. We want to be doing burpees when we're 80 and like no problem getting to the ground and hopping back up and not having knee problems. So there is this shift as I started to go through school and was in school to become a dietitian where I was trying to study it from the mindset of like deep health and deep health isn't just the food that we put in ourselves or the exercise that we do. It is looking at things like are our hormones in balance? Are we avoiding nutritional deficiencies? Cause we're starving ourselves. And then there's some subclinical micronutrients we're not getting, but it's deeper than that. Do we have good mental health? Do we have good spiritual health? Do we have good relationship health with our friends, our partners, our family members? So I was looking at health really globally. 
And so that's where I started to look at data to be like, hey, over time, my body's going to change. I'm going to get older. I'm curious to just document where things are in my 20s. And so I happened to buy this gold standard research piece of equipment called the Bod Pod because what it can measure, you know. Yeah, which, because why not? Why not go drop a couple 20s. of grand on a, on a bot? <laughs> yeah, no, it was a very happy accident. I was renting our university's Bod Pod for my own nutrition clients. And one of my clients who was a landlord had one of his tenants default on the rent for like 18 months. And the way the laws work here is the owner of commercial real estate takes over the possessions to auction them off. And he called me up and he's like, I have this really expensive paperweight. Do you want to buy a bod pod for me? And I'm like, I'm coming with cash. Yes, I want that. Shut up and take my money. (laughs) Yeah, because they're so hard to get and they're so expensive normally. So I got it really on sale. And so I moved to this bod pod into our facility and I was like, I'm not going to be psycho. I'm going to check it two to four times a year. So like once a season change is all I kind of need. I'm curious as I train hard and lift weights, is my muscle going up? Because that tells me I'm eating enough calories for my body to take those nutrients and especially the protein. And I'm seeing noticeable muscle gain. Do I have enough healthy body fat that I'm going to be more protected when the open season comes around for CrossFit, where I'm not going to get sick with a cold or flu, like people that are a little bit more overtrained and undernourished, their immune systems are a little bit more vulnerable. So I was truly approaching this, not from a place of disordered body image, just that curious nerdy scientist that's like, huh, I wonder where my numbers are kind of like blood work, like, huh, I wonder what my ferritin, my iron stores are. And then if something was too high, too low, or just right, then I could not stress about the outcome or the numbers, look at the inputs that I had direct control over to see what I could do to support, support my athletic capacity. So was it that you're gamifying it again, you're, you're just gamifying personally. Totally. (laughs) So it's like, Hey, I'm not building muscle fast enough. Do I need to up my protein intake? Do I need to maybe look at cycling and some creatine? Do I actually maybe need more sleep, which is really important for muscle building? Is my body fat at an optimal percent? That's going to affect my estrogen, my progesterone stores. I want to be able to menstruate and not worry about losing my period because I'm training too hard or not eating enough. So I was just really using all of this to help me gauge kind of like Like I'm not a biohacker, but I was using it to try to allow myself to peak because I was taking my sport really seriously. So I knew I was healthy because I had all this data, right? My training log, checking in with my coach, the bod pod thing. And then all of a sudden something went wrong. So right away, I brought it to my doctor. And maybe if any females are listening or even any males who support a female, like you, you just have to trust your body. And so for me, what happened is all of a sudden I lost my period. And then I started having hot flashes. Like I was in full on menopause. So I would just drench, turn red and drench in sweat. I'd go through like four t-shirts a day. I'd be sitting there like fanning myself. This is in your your early twenties, right? Early, early to mid twenties. Okay. So So like not at all menopausal age or perimenopausal age. And so I went to my family doctor after like a couple months of this. I'm like, I'm really uncomfortable. My sleep is all disrupted. I just gained like four pounds right around my midsection. I am not doing anything differently. Like you hear a lot of women are like, I swear I haven't changed a thing. I'm like, I swear I have not changed a thing. I can it's show all you. Yeah, Literally I can show you, but something is weird. Something is off. So she's like, okay, let's do some testing. 
So I got sent to a gynecologist. I got sent to, you know, go get some ultrasounds. And they're like, this is weird. All your blood work indicates you're fully menopausal right now. Like nothing is where it should be for a 29 year old. Everything is off. Your FSH is through the roof. We don't really see estrogen where we need it to be. Um, so they're like, we got to figure out why right now we don't understand. And I was like, I'm not underweight. Like my estrogen isn't too low because I have an eating disorder. Remember I said, I wanted to make sure I was fat enough. Like I have nutrition clients with anorexia who experience similar things, but it's because their body fat is so, so low that that's obviously created hormonal disruption. Um, so in the meantime, and this is my one regret is they're like, well, when you were on birth control, you weren't, these symptoms didn't happen. So at least we can manage your symptoms with exogenous hormones or to say it another way, less high, high level. We're going to put you on birth control because things worked and felt better when you had a chemically induced hormonal balance. But I was like, but that's not got to get to the root cause. Like that's taking Tylenol and saying that you're in pain and you don't feel the pain because you took Tylenol. I always give the metaphor of like, if your foot hurts, take the shoe off, take the sock off, look at the toe. Why is there pain in that toe? Not here's T3s. You won't feel a thing with your toe. And maybe there's glass in your toe and it's infected. Okay. I need to know that. So then I can get upstream and go fix the root cause. So I didn't let it go just at birth control. I was like, we need to actually figure out why this is happening. Like something is definitely off. So some fascinating things I learned along the way. I've had a series of concussions and with brain injury. So in sport, obviously, you know, you can change things. Your pituitary is located in your brain, which does set off the cascade, especially for female reproduction of how things work every single month. So we looked into, was there potentially pituitary damage? And so for anyone that's had a long withstanding concussion history, this can show up in your reproductive system. So that's something to know. Um, another thing, now this is not me at all, big disclaimer, but people with drug or substance abuse can have lingering effects later on with reproduction because of the effects that's had on had on the brain. Now I've never taken drugs, that's not, that's not my thing. Uh, I was like, no, we can rule that out. So we were still kind of like looking for the weird, mysterious thing. And then I got really, really sick. I caught H1N1 flu that had me bedridden for two weeks and I nearly died. Like I, I hate to sound dramatic, but it was one of those life or death experiences. And you hear those statistics about like people who die from the flu every winter. And I was this close to being one of those people who die from the flu. So I couldn't breathe. I started turning blue. My dog went to the spare bedroom where my husband was like quarantined so we wouldn't get him sick. And she woke him up and I was like limp in bed. And he like scoops me up and rushes me to the hospital. And they like kind of resuscitated me. Like I like was barely breathing. My heart was going crazy. Um, like I was just shutting down from this flu virus. And thank goodness that on-call emergency room doctor, he's like, there is something else here. Like, yes, you have the flu, but he's like, there's something else going on. And so my always lingering symptom is I always had a lot of breathing problems and mucus in my lungs, but more importantly, a ton of digestion, digestion, mucus and digestive upset. And so he's like, let's, you know, have you go to a gastroenterologist, one of the GI specialists. He's like, you might actually have 
undiagnosed cystic fibrosis. I don't know how you've been an athlete this whole time, but you know, we see reproductive failure, mucus, trouble breathing, incredibly sick when they get sick. Let's tend you, send you for cystic fibrosis testing. And I was like, what the heck? So I went through this whole barrage of testing. Of course, even when I felt like I couldn't breathe, they're like, well, your exhale percentage is like 180% of normal, like above average. I'm like, yeah, because I've been an elite athlete for 22 years now. Like I've been working on my lungs since I was a little kid, but I'm like, but I feel like I can't breathe. And they're like, well, according to our chart, you're breathing better, like 180% better than we would expect. And I was like, okay, like just because you're healthy, no one takes you seriously. So finally, this had been about five years. So this is really crazy. And, um, two things had happened where like we could have caught it earlier and it got missed. So around the first one was right around 29 when all the hot flash problems started. I also had a pap test, very common for females. You go every year, every few years. My first one was abnormal, not totally crazy. Don't need the red alarm right away. But what then happens is you're supposed to have three pap tests in the one year of an abnormal one. Did my due diligence, went to the hospital, had my three follow-ups, you always hear no news is good news. Heard no news, must be good news, moved on. While we're still doing this other investigative testing. Two weeks before my cancer surgery, I did go back and find the report. And that report said negative for cervical cancer, abnormal cells are detected, further testing is needed to rule out ovarian or uterine cancer. And the gynecologist didn't read the report. My family doctor didn't read the report. I was one of those cases of, doesn't look sick, looks really healthy, skimmed over it. So that was already in the works. We already knew something was off. No one, the gynecologist, when I went for the further testing, didn't review it. Like just, you have to, okay. If I were to give anyone advice, anytime you have testing done on you, you get a printed physical copy and you stick it in a binder and you bring that binder with you when you go specialist to specialist to go, if there's anything in here, you'd like to quickly review, here are the prominent test scans, blood work that I've done because they don't go in the computer and review your whole history. They'll take a quick general history of what you're saying, um, but that probably would have made a huge difference. So I'm still, the the word, uh, what was the word they always use? Uh, idiopathic. So in my chart, this word idiopathic, idiopathic, idiopathic was everywhere. And I was like, what the heck disease is idiopathic? Like I wasn't a Google searcher. Idiopathic basically means something's wrong. We don't know the real reason. Unexpl we don't have unexplainable symptomology. Unexplainable symptomology. Like I just had idiopathic written everywhere. Idiopathic so is doctor is doctor speak for we don't effing know. <laughs> that's exactly it. So I am now getting sicker and sicker. Like I get over this H1N1 flu. They test me for cystic fibrosis. They test my lungs. I feel like I still have like breathing problems, digestive problems. Now the dietitian in me is nerding out on food sensitivities. Do I have a FODMAP intolerance? Is it gluten? Is it dairy? Is it, you know, whatever, some kind of chemical. So I'm, I'm eating as nutritiously as I can, making all my foods myself. Like, and then all of a sudden I'm like keeled over dumping my insides out. I try to eat. It comes right out. Like nothing stays in me. And I'm just like rocking on a chair, curled in a ball, trying to be between nutrition clients being like, I, and I just start losing weight and feel so, so sick. And so I was like, do I have a parasite? Like I've traveled, you know, to the Caribbean, the water is maybe different. Maybe I picked up a parasite and I have a parasitic infection. 
So I go look into parasitic testing. And then finally, I just was like, can you guys do a colonoscopy? So um, Crohn's disease is actually, Canada has one of the highest percentages of Crohn's disease in the world, which is a disease that, you know, shows up in the GI tract where you get these ulcers that bleed and it interferes with nutrient absorption. I've worked with a number of clients. You can have it in remission and then it flares with stress and symptomatic. We think it might be in Canada, possibly connected to our lower levels of vitamin D and sunlight. There's obviously a strong genetic component to this. So I just advocate for myself to finally go get a colonoscopy, not a fun thing to do in your thirties, but like I needed it. So I do the, they try to bump me because I'm like not high risk, right? Like I'm young, I look healthy, my blood works squeaky clean. And so they, I'd already been pushed back like 18 months or something like that. And so finally my turn in the system comes up because I'm not urgent. So I would have got in had I been, you know, sent as an urgent referral, but I'm someone in my thirties who's just asking to do a colonoscopy. So I finally get it. And, um, that's where everything. Someone who's asking to do a colonoscopy, not for fun. Yeah, right. Like it's, it's, it's not a, I'm not here because I want to be here. It's not a fun procedure. So my husband, we get, you know, fully sedated in Canada. My husband was my driver. I'm not going to be able to like wake up from the anesthesia and drive myself home. And he's sitting in the waiting room being like, gosh, it's taking a long time. Like poor Jen. He's like, ah, oh, probably some old person in front of her is getting bad news and holding things up. Nope. It's me on the table. So they get the camera around the sigmoid colon, which is like the final bend before it connects to the rectum. There's growth and cancer, but they can't say it's cancer yet because it hasn't been biopsy. They have to be very careful with their language. And then they get the camera up a little bit higher. And on the other side of my GI tract, there's growths and blockages right around the ileocecal valve and the appendix. So I finally come to, and I get the sentence you never want to hear in medical speak, which is, we need to, the doctor wants to see you in, in the room. And I'm like, I know it's coming. And so he looks me in the eye and he's like, yeah, there's some things that we had to take out. We're sending them for a biopsy. And I just look him in the eye. Cause this had been now five years of trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I just, in my heart, in my gut, I knew. And I said, is it cancer? Like, shoot me straight. Is it cancer? And he's like, well, it's like, we can't say. And I was like, no, you, you look at this every day, all the time. Like as a dietitian, I know what I'm looking at when I see certain types of conditions. Is it cancer? And he of course can't say, but he just goes 50, 50. And I was like, okay, like you just confirmed it for me. So then at that point, it kind of escalates because it is cancer. He can't say that it gets sent off for pathology testing. And now they're all confused because what was first diagnosed as colon cancer is not colon cancer. This did not start in my colon. Metastasized and growing through my GI wall and into my intestinal tract. And that's when I learned I had ovarian cancer. Oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. Leave your body. <laughs> Always believe your body. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, uh, well, first of all, I am sorry that you experienced that because that is a uh, systemic failure on multiple levels of people not not listening to you and you even trying to advocate for yourself and people still not yeah. listening to you because you're yeah. healthy. So I'm sorry that you weren't heard and I'm sorry that you went through that. I'm glad that you're still here. Um, knowing what I know about metastasized cancers and particularly in the lower GI, uh, you, I'm guessing your survival percentage was somewhere around 10 or 15% was probably when you had Mets cancer in your lower GI tract. You were probably in that 
likelihood to survive? Eight percent, eight percent, eight percent chance I've lived in five years. And I just celebrated five years this December 3rd, just a few weeks ago. Wow. I mean, yeah. Slantima, that's, I mean, you're, cheers to you. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so you had, so obviously you're still here, which is great. You had to have surgery, I'm assuming. And then, and then what was your, yeah. what, was your what was the rest of your, your treatment? Oh, so surgery was the big one. I mean, you, you name it, they took it. So I lost my uterus, my ovaries, my appendix, my ileocecal valve, the starting of my large intestine, the end of my large intestine called the sigmoid colon, a third of my bladder, a whole bunch of momentum and blood vessels. Like it was one giant fuzzy tent caterpillar nest that had just clung to all my organs. For ovarian cancer, what they call it is a debulking surgery. So essentially you don't get a solid tumor that you cut and you're like, oh, we got the tumor. We got good margins. You're covered in a spider web fuzz and they essentially scrape it off your organs. So unbelievably painful. Like I had incision from my you know, rib cage to my pubic bone, 32 staples. I had my two parts of my intestine cut apart, sewn back together. A third of my bladder lobbed off. So I like pee like a pregnant lady now all the time. Um, and then my nerve got crushed in surgery. So they pinched my femoral nerve by accident. And I was in like a labor delivery position. Um, and then because I, again, wasn't, didn't have a lot of fat to pad it. The nerve had the blood supply cut off. So my right leg was like a limp noodle when I woke up. And I could not walk. I had to walk with a walker for months and months. And then a cane. And I actually taught myself how to walk again. So I will never take walking for granted ever again. I love walking. Yeah. I was just going to say when you, so, so when you say, um, how did you phrase it? Um, exercising from a place of joy or joyous exercise. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, sorry. I'm like, I'm like getting emotional hearing your story like that. Like yeah. that's, that is incredible. Like, um, like to, to, to go from a place where, where you couldn't, you, you weren't sure you were going to be able to walk again. Right. To, to now you yeah. can move your body again, going and the, 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 the Delta between being like the high, like a really, maybe not the highest level athlete, but a very high, right. level, an elite level athlete to like, yeah, I was I like, back I don't know if I'll be able to walk kilos three days yeah. before surgery. Wow. Yeah. yeah and like, uh... sled pulls and, but like, I think about that joyous moment of, I couldn't walk. And I visualized, I was like, by that summer, because my surgery was December 3rd, 2018. I was like, I'm going to surf on a surfboard in Tofino and ride and rip waves all the way in the shore. Like I can't walk right now, but give me six months. And I was riding motorcycles and surfing in Tofino six, seven months later after surgery. Wow. Well, mm -hmm. that is, uh, that is an incredible journey to this point. Um, I can't wait to see what else you do. Um, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. So, um, with that as the, as the context, like, we'll we'll just, we'll talk for like 10, 15 minutes about women's health yeah. because, yeah. um, you know, like you alluded to it, like, so if you're not a woman, you probably know a woman and you probably need to support a woman or you have a woman who supported you that you should also support. So this, this is yeah. kind of for everybody, but what are, what are some key things that you would, that you would lead, uh, with to, talking to, to women about how their health needs yeah. because of, because of their totally. biology. So I used to be a foods and, foods and nutrition university professor at a university. And my class I got to teach was sports nutrition. What is so fascinating, because I've read more sports nutrition, like PubMed research articles is most of the time they are conducted on young men 
in their 20s. So women's athletic bodies vary very much from that of males. And also when you look at the yelling on the internet related to food advice, it's often the males that are the loudest screaming, this is the best carnivore, keto, da, 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 da. So women are absorbing this information that has been studied and tested mostly on young males. Women are often excluded from research studies because it's hard to control for their cycle because women have different hormones at different levels of the month. And science is trying to have things as even and as controlled as possible. So they're like, Ooh, that makes it, that makes it difficult to figure out how they're going to respond to this training stimulus or whatever. Let's just leave them out. They're going to have those changes that should be studied within. We couldn't couldn't possibly baseline. Like what is your normal cycle duration? When does it start? What day did you like? Well, your hormones are not going to be the same for a 28 (laughs) to 35 day period. And that's normal for every single female of reproductive age. That's probably something we should study. So here are some of the, the noticeable differences that have come out from those researchers who value studying the data in women versus men. One big difference is fasting and another big difference is carbohydrates. So I'm going to talk a little bit about both carbohydrates first. So if you think about this, isn't about like pro babies or whatever, just think about evolution and what male and female bodies hormonally are designed to try to do. A woman body of reproductive fertile age is to be ready and able to get pregnant if needed and or to carry a pregnancy to full term without miscarrying and then continue to support that life through breastfeeding. This is a very energy intensive process. It's a lot like working out every day, just growing live tissue and making human materials and then nourishing that baby. So glucose is very important to a developing neurological system. Babies that are deprived of adequate sugar, deprived of adequate carbs and glucose actually develop these really thrifty genomes. And one of the most fascinating places that we saw this where unethically, we can't research this, but accidentally we discovered it from natural causes and World War II is the example I'm going to use. Many of the babies that were conceived during the war, during famines, during food shortages had a lot less carbohydrate exposure in vitro. And then what happens from that is their DNA is like, oh, I must not have a lot of carbon in my environment. So it starts to get thrifty in the way it metabolizes glucose. Then you put that child in a normalized food environment with enough food, enough energy, and it tries to hoard and store it as fat. So those children of mothers who don't eat enough carbs and glucose while pregnant have way higher rates of diabetes, way more cardiovascular heart attacks, strokes, cardiovascular incidences, and actually are set up to be more likely to be obese and overweight through their lifetime. So around those reproductive years, this whole low carb fad that's been going on now for quite a while is really harmful on women, especially if they accidentally get pregnant and then choose that they want to continue on with the pregnancy. Um, Females are way more sensitive to carb shortages. And I'll give you a more funny anecdotal point. Cranky women, give them a snack with carbs. They'll probably like calm down quite a bit. I'm cranky. Give me a snack that has some carbohydrates. Don't just give me a handful of almonds. Like give me an apple, give me a some whole wheat bread with peanut butter. Like I'm going to be the nicest person to you, but take away my carbs and get me really hungry. You're not going to like my attitude. 
my wife still hasn't forgiven me for the fact that um, when we were getting ready for our marriage, we we trained together and I designed our workout protocol and we were working out hard and everything. And, uh, and I, because, I mean, she had her goal and I coached her the best way I knew at the time. And, and we, right. we reduced car, we reduced like carbs. I, I, I took, I, I took, I took, I took her, I took her potatoes away. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, but I promised her, I promised her that I was like, I was like, this is a short-term thing that we're doing because we have these yeah. goals that we're working towards. And we were, we both lost a bunch of weight. It was, we, we were mm-hmm. successful with it, but I took her potatoes away and I promised her there will be potatoes that you can have at the wedding. My wife has celiacs and is allergic to dairy, like severely. So like, oh. so I was like, yeah. I was like, there will be potatoes that you can have at the wedding. Like I prom like that, that will be part of the deal. And so, and so, and then the caterer did not make her special potatoes <laughs> her potatoes on the on the big day and i am i'm still i'm still digging out of that hole uh, yeah so, um yeah yeah so this is a huge difference men men to women is men often feel phenomenal low carb i can't tell you how many male clients i've worked with who are like i feel great my thinking's never been more clear i have so much energy my workouts feel fantastic And then I have these female clients who are being told, you don't have enough discipline. You don't have enough willpower. You don't want it enough. And they're like losing their mind. Their their mood is all over the place. They feel tired, exhausted, and sluggish. And then they start to binge eat and they feel so ashamed and guilty. And the reason they're binge eating is nature's going crisis, crisis. There isn't enough circulating glucose. If you were to get pregnant at this moment, we need to get your blood sugars up, go into the chocolate chips, go devour the bag of potato chips, go into the ice cream. And then are like, come on, just have some self-control. What's wrong with you? Hormonally, what's happening is very different males to females. That Poor also- Those men, they're no longer with us. The ones that said that are, are probably dead. Yeah. And <laughs> the same is actually true for fasting. So some women absolutely feel fine on fasting. Most do not, and most will have reproductive impacts from extended fasting. So again, men are like, I've never felt better. I feel so clear-headed. I have so much energy. Well, like they just, and again, the research that's mostly done in fasting is on males. When we put many women on intermittent fasting protocols, it actually makes it easier many times for them to gain weight. Because when they do come back into a food environment, the body's like, you took food away. I better store some extra extra calories is great if I need to breastfeed or get pregnant. I better store up because now what we've communicated is food insecurity. And females were meant to, again, I'm not stereotyping gender roles. Please don't misconstrue that. But like men would go out. We're talking biology, not, not. We're talking biology here, right? They'd go off, they'd go hunting, they'd go days maybe where they didn't have a lot of food, where women stayed around the camp. They had access to food. They, you know, were still breastfeeding and carrying around the young babies. They might've still been pregnant. So their food availability was more regular and their bodies evolved for that food regularity. So I see many women actually do better with like three meals, two snacks and eat less and men not do well. And they're like, I do better two meals, maybe a snack, maybe not a longer intermittent fast time. Um, Even just in terms of fueling of what, you know, women and men use in a workout is a little bit different. So women often perform better in their workout when they have something pre-workout. Like if you're a morning exerciser, even getting up and having a banana or some applesauce just for a female to get her blood glucose up a bit higher, she's going to be stronger. Her lifts are going to be better. Her endurance is going to come through. 
where a guy could get up, fasted, no problem, last meal, night before, perform just as equally well. So there are these subtle differences, but women feel so embarrassed or defeated when they trial the information that's being screamed at them. And notice who a lot of the times is doing the screaming for keto, for paleo, for intermittent fasting. It's a lot more male dominated where that advice is coming from. And whether that comes out of the mouth of a male or mouth of a female, does not matter that, go to the source, go to PubMed, look at, look at the demographics. And when I'm a scientist nerd, I always look at who was this studying on and is this applicable to the human in front of me? And so I'm, I'm going to yeah, add one, I'm going to add different. one more to that. And remember that you are an N of one and bioindividuality yeah. is a thing because even, totally. even, even if I'm like, Hey, Jen, I feel fantastic fasting. You should try it. If you right. feel you, it's okay to try it. It's okay to try it. Yes. Like it's okay to experiment, but if you try it and you're like, well, I feel like shit. Listen Can to your body. Fasting story. I love your end of one example. So as a coach, I believe in trying experiments, not because I'm trying to follow every flash in the pan thing, but I want to just from a place of experience and like, Hey, I here's some things. So one of the things I did is I experimented one or two, two times with intermittent fasting. Here's the end of one for Jen answers. I tried it once on vacation. So I was like, this is a pretty easy place. I don't have to be thinking. By four o'clock, I was so obsessed with food. A little girl left her strawberry milkshake on the pool deck and went away into the pool. And I just kept staring at it being like, do I steal this little girl's strawberry milkshake and like have a sip from it? And maybe I won't get caught. And then I was like, what is going on? I, no, I did not drink the little Jen girl. traumatized a six-year-old on vacation because she stole it. I was so food obsessed. And I just felt miserable. And then here's what happened. I got really, really sick the next day. My immune system crapped out. And then I tried it yet another time. And lo and behold, the, the, my immune system crapped out. And it was like that little bit of vulnerability of food insecurity. My white blood cells were like, huh, like wah, wah, we don't have the energy. And this is just an anecdotal experiment of two. But both times I've been foggy, cranky, food obsessed bingy and urgent to have to just eat whatever and I've gotten sick like hasn't been a great experience and there's probably people being like well you have to get through the hard part push further I also did fast for seven days because of my cancer surgery right I had a three-day fast because my intestines were cut open you can't have any food and then I had another six days of no food until I could prove things were moving I lost 12 pounds of muscle in that 10-day period and it took me a year and a half because I have the bod pot, I have the data to build it back. So if fasting for me every single time has gone terribly bad. So I would never equivocally say like everyone should fast. I have other clients, maybe with pre-diabetes, males, busy jobs. They don't want to necessarily work as hard on their food. I'm like, that's a wonderful suggestion for you. You just have to put locks around the time. And then you've got your window where it's a smaller window for less to come in. And it works beautifully as a strategy. So very different male and female um, impacts. Yeah. Yeah. So that there's, there's so much we could unpack and nerd out on more from, <laughs> especially from the sociology perspective and the different messages that men and women receive and who's delivering those messages and, you know, right. et cetera, et cetera, but another podcast, another time. But um, mm -hmm. I'm curious. So 
Women have been told that carbs are bad for them. We've all been right. told that, that fat is bad for us. What are the impacts of low fat diets on, on women? Because we're talking about hormonal health and hormonal right. variations and hormones are yeah. made from cholesterol, which comes they more are. from fat. <laughs> so. Very smart of you to bring that up. So sterols are one of the three forms that fat can take. And sterols are things in cholesterol, vitamin D, testosterone, progesterone, estrogen. So they are the physical building blocks to go make your hormones inside of you. And I'll give you a real life example. I was working with this couple, a triathlete, male and female, who were trying to have their first baby and they just kept miscarrying or like months and months of trying and, and not being successful. And before they went the whole IVF route, they're like, what else can we try to do that healthy and natural that's going to optimize for our two bodies? I was like, okay, let's sit down and look at what we're eating. And I was like, you guys just like, don't eat fat. And they're like, again, from eighties messages, they're like, no, like fat's really bad. You know, we're triathletes. So we really focus on our carbs and our protein, but we don't want a lot of fat in our races. And when I added it up, they were probably around 30, 35, 40 grams of fat a day, desperately low for both of them. So I said, here's what I need you each to do. You each need to go get your baseline hormones. Like I need to know where your testosterone is, where your, you know, female hormones are. And I said, independent of that, I just know enough about fats and, and hormone building. We need to add a bit more. Let's bring in chia seeds. Let's bring in avocados. Let's have some salmon. Let's have some nuts and seeds. You know, let's just add healthy fat. Within six weeks, they were pregnant. Because I was like, again, you just didn't have the building block to go make the hormones. A miracle worker. Healthy pregnancy. Yeah. So it's just, here's the funny thing about nutrition. And I, I probably say this till I'm a broken record. If you just kind of trust what nature did, nature gave us a wide variety of foods with fats, with carbs, with protein, with vitamins, with minerals. If nature made it, eat it slowly, slowly, mindfully, joyfully, listen when you're hungry and eat, stop when you're satisfied and when you're full, move your body frequently, try to get enough rest. You cannot really screw it up. There's many right ways to eat healthy, especially if you just embrace how nature delivered it. But what's interesting is as these people start to get more extreme on their pedestals of whatever soapbox they want to scream from, right? These are bad. Take this out. Go all carnivore, all vegan, all paleo, all this, all that. The more extreme we make the messaging, the more complications and side effects we see. It's just the boring, consistent, stable, isn't sexy, doesn't sell books. It doesn't get you booked on Netflix. So it's a battle of attention when really the body just needs whole real foods from nature, a wide variety of a mix of stuff nature came up with, and you'll be perfectly fine. You don't have to overthink it, yeah. but there's a lot of bickering on the internet, I think, for attention. Do the do the boring work consistently, and it's amazing yeah. how how much that that solves so many problems. Like, how did you get strong? I lifted a lot of heavy weights over and, and I over rested over again, and I rested <laughs> and recovered, and I ate. Yeah, right? like yeah. Exactly. How did you get skinny? Well, I took care of my nutrition, and you know, I slept, and I yeah, all of all of those not sexy. They don't sell books, like you said. And it's like, how many times can yeah. you say? 
you know, 40, 30, 30 is a really good ratio and <laughs> you should just make sure your calories are in line and take care of, take care of all of those things. Um, all right. One final question before, before we go. And, and this goes to specifically for, for the audience that, that we're probably mostly speaking to, cause you mentioned CrossFit athletes and I coach right. a lot of kettlebell sport athletes, right? So how does high intensity exercise, highly glycolytic sugar burning exercises yeah. affect your nutrition needs, especially for women, since we're talking about women. So let's, let's, let's narrow it even to, to women for women that are training CrossFit or training high intensity exercise. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to use a couple of metaphors. I'm going to use sports cars and gas tanks for a second. So men, bigger bodies, bigger muscles, bigger gas tanks. They have more capacity to store glycogen in their muscles and their liver. Women's cars, women's bodies tend to biologically be just that little bit smaller, a little bit less muscle. So smaller tanks. So women are that much more sensitive to their glycogen running out because their tanks are smaller, right? Think about driving a transport truck's gas tank versus driving a little Fiat's, you know, maybe obviously that's a very extreme example. So number one, men can overall store more carbohydrate in their body, meaning if they miss a meal with carbs or have a little bit longer fasting window, they have a bigger tank to go off of women a little bit less. So, so that's something to pay attention. Now, high intensity, I want, I'm going to use the metaphor I teach in my sports nutrition class of a shower. People often mix up fat and carb burning. So this is the best metaphor I can give you. Everyone who has a shower in their house knows that they have a hot water tank that supplies the hot water that goes to the shower. Now, when you take a shower, it's not extremely scalding hot or freezing cold. You have this dial that allows you to mix hot and cold. So you get the temperature that feels right for you. Now, I want you to think about length of time before different temperatures run out. If I put it on as hot, hot, hot as the dial will go, what do you think your time frame is that you could take a hot shower, scalding hot? Before 10 minutes, hot water? Probably 10 minutes at most, yeah. Okay, so think of high intensity, like scalding hot showers. You can't run your 400 meter pace for two hours. Your body, when you ask the intensity to go up, you burn the hot water, which is the glycogen, very, very quickly. Now, if I did the opposite, I said I took a cold, cool water shower. How long do you think that output could keep giving you cold water? Two hours? Indefinite? Three hours? Yeah, I'm in Minnesota, so it's a, the water. The water by default is cold right now. Yeah, so. it's cold. <laughs> but if I said, could you go walk for four hours at a casual pace, no intensity to the walking? where you're just talking and breathing. You could maintain that for four hours. So whenever we bring the intensity down, the amount of fat we use as a fuel goes up because we have lots of oxygen and we need oxygen specifically to go in the mitochondria, cellular respiration to make ATP. When we don't have a lot of oxygen and we're pushing as hard of an intensity as we can, that's where we burn our hot water. So think of it like a look hard starved athlete crossfitter trying to take a really hot shower instead of getting to start with a nice big hot water tank imagine you started your shower and you're only at a quarter full because you had five roommates go in before yeah, you your family your family of four and everybody else showered yeah. before you you're and like now you're stuck with cold water and shampoo in your hair so why would you as an athlete put yourself in that position you ideally if you know you're in a high glycolytic turnover sport like crossfit eat the carbs because you're going to go through that hot water tank so quickly. And then when you're resting and recovering, it lets the hot water fill back up 
and you can take another shower in the day or another workout in a competition. And so this was my secret weapon because when I did CrossFit regionals was the height of paleo. Day one, everyone was pretty evenly matched. I crushed on day three because I ate carbs all through the competition. I kid you not. I remember one of the athlete briefing rooms was like kale salad with like almonds and olive oil. And people are eating that 30 minutes before going on the floor. I was like, you're going to barf it up or poop your pants. Like, why are you eating that pre-workout? But it's paleo. It was healthy. And I was like, it is healthy. I will eat that at another time not right now. And I'm eating like rice cakes with peanut butter and applesauce cups. And I think I had, you know, a sports drink with electrolytes in it. And people thought I was like, what are you doing? Putting processed sugar into you. And I'm like, and I'm going to pass you on day three because my glycogen stores have something to work off of. Highly branched, highly branched cyclic dextrin is what was one of my favorite, one of my favorite carbohydrate supplement discoveries, right? Like I started to be, was like, I went from like having shaky hands after a, after a 10 minute set. And it's like, oh, now I can, uh, now I can actually tie my shoes or take my belt off. Right. (laughs) But does that shower make sense around hot water? No, it's a great, it's a great analogy. Take the intensity down and we want just lukewarm. You can do lukewarm intensity for a long time because you have fat and some carbs. But if you want the intensity to be max, max, you have to be eating more carbs in your diet because you're just draining your hot water tank so quickly. Yeah. I want to work with your biology. Why would you fight it? Yeah, exactly. Well, you have to understand it. And that's where, that's where coaches come in, right? It's, it's hard. A lot of people it's, and it's hard to know when everybody's on the internet, on their own, on their own soapbox screaming about what's evil. And it's like, we're all divided into our tribes. So, I mean, thank you so much for, for coming on and clarifying some of that. I'll give you the opportunity to tell people how do they follow you so they can get more practical advice and the, the colorful, wonderful analogies that you, that you always throw in that I love. I love, I'm totally stealing the shower analogy. I'm telling you right now, I will, I will totally steal that. I'll give you credit for it, but I'm totally stealing that analogy. It's a wonderful. I analogy. love it. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at prosper underscore NC. Um, the certification is prospernutritioncoaching.com. And for any of you coaches who love freebies, I've got games and metaphors. On our Prosper website, if you go to prospernutritioncoaching.com slash liftoff, I've built an entire nutrition masterclass for nutrition coaches, and you can just steal games and metaphors, and I've got a whole bunch of resources completely for free for download. So if you like to coach that way, there's a lot of goodies embedded in there. Awesome. Well, Jen, thank you so much. And thank you for, thank you for so honestly sharing your journey and your story too, because I know that that that's a really, really painful thing that you went through, but it's, it's an amazing and inspiring story that you, that you share with others. So thank you for, thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I hope everyone learned some stuff about women and men's sports nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jen. Okay. Bye. Stop that one. Stop the other one. I'm looking for all the buttons. There we go.